Belgium are out. Germany are out. Roberto Martinez is gone. Gerardo Martino is gone. To win the Belgian dugout is also gone. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the 13th TFA Daily Woke Up podcast of our Woke Up series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, as ever, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. In the early fixtures yesterday, Croatia held on for dear life for the point that saw them progress to the knockout phase despite Belgium having clear-cut opportunity after clear-cut opportunity in a final 30 minutes that would be replaying in the nightmares of Romelu Lukaku for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, the goalless draw meant that Morocco were given the green light to finish top of the group with a thrilling 2-1 victory over Canada who have limped out of the tournament. This was a truly incredible feat by Valid Rograghi's side and for African nations as a whole who have been superb at this World Cup, which is certainly refreshing to see. If that wasn't enough drama for you, Japan shocked the world by putting one of the favourites, Spain, to the sword and handing Luis Enrique's men the scare of their lives for a spell of three minutes, where Costa Rica were also beating Germany, sending social media into utter chaos. Unfortunately, it wasn't a B for Costa Rica, who bow out of the tournament, but certainly put up a decent fight after their seven-goal humiliation in the opening game week. However, despite winning 4-2 on the night and coming back from 2-1 down, Germany are also out, which is potentially the biggest surprise of the tournament, alongside the departures of both Denmark and Belgium. There's so, so much to unpack, but in this episode of the podcast, we do our very best to break down how each game unfolded, looking at some key tactical details from the fixtures. Thankfully, to help me unpack all the action, I'm joined by TFA analysts Bryant Marquez and Brandon Liss. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. Brian, Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today. What a what a jaw dropping, hard racing twenty four hours of walk up action we've had. Let's jump straight into things and start with the hectic goalless draw between Belgium and Croatia. Roberto Martinez is officially gone after I think six or seven years in charge, six years I believe, in charge of the Belgian national team. He has stood down after yesterday's goalless draw with Croatia which knocked Belgium out of the World Cup, despite being one of the favourites to win it. Before this match, we spoke to Lucas, our betting expert, and he told us that Belgium going into this game were 66-1 to to win the World Cup, considering they were, uh, I think they were one of the highest-ranked teams in FIFA heading into the tournament, if not number one, which is such a bizarre tournament event over the course of... It was literally just two matches had passed at the time and when the odds increased so heavily in their favour. Brandon, I'll come to you. Is this a surprise? Um, I feel like the writing was on the wall for him going into this tournament. He was out of contract at the end of this tournament. Since he's taken over, 2018 World Cup was the high finishing third. And since then, it has slowly gotten worse. Euros, quarterfinals, knocked out, now out of the group stage, aging squad. He never really seemed to try to change the guard necessarily with bringing some of the new players and he brought some of them in for this game against Croatia mm-hmm. with Eden Hazard being dropped, no Lukaku players like that. But then you look at the rest of the team and it's like Axel Witzel. He's a good player, but he's aging. Then you got outer Vyrod and Vertonghen. You have, and then when you look at the Belgian league, Zeno de Bast has done really well. And yes, he's only 18, but you would think that maybe start slowly changing some players, some of the rotating, some of the older players out who, maybe can't even they can't play that many minutes that many minutes anymore and just try to put in new players tactically he hasn't been the best uh, recently so i think the writing was on the wall which is interesting considering 
there was reports in Belgian media before this tournament that he was going to sign an extension regardless of what happened with him staying with, because they were the number one team in the world for essentially the entire time he was, um, he was their manager, which was kind of weird when you look at, they didn't win a single thing during his time there. And finally that going into his tournament, Brazil overtook them for number one, but it was definitely something that I feel was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I didn't think he was going to stay, especially as I said, it's gotten worse progressively. The squad is aging. So this is probably the perfect time bringing a new manager with the new players in the squad that are going to start coming through. Cause other key players, De Bruyne is 31, Lukaku's 29, um, Courtois is 30. Outer Viral and Vertongen are both in their mid thirties. Yeah. Mertens too. Mm-hmm. The, a, a lot of the core of that squad is older and the new players will now start to filter. And so this may be sort of a transitional period for Belgium. They have a lot of good young talent, but with them being young, there will be mistakes. So it'll, it may be a bit of a transitional period and yeah. it will be interesting to see who they go. They look for to replace uh, Martinez. I, I made this point a few days ago on the podcast, and at risk of sounding like a parrot, I, I'll, I'll repeat the point here. I, I think over Martinez's spell in charge, you could kind of pick the same starting eleven for every single match in terms of, mm-hmm. I mean, like from, from day one till now, he's basically used the same group of players minus, or, or with the exception of a couple of new additions, like maybe a Leo Trossard when he became kind of a, a Premier, you know, when, when he was doing really well in the Premier League or, or Timothy Castagna, you know, a couple mm-hmm. of players. Well, I mean, your core group, your Thibaut Courtois, Vertonghen, Alderweireld, Thomas Mounier, uh, I mean, Axel Witzel, of course, Amadou Onan is only new on the team as well, so fair, I mean, he's a great, um, he's a great young player, but then there's like Lukaku, De Bruyne, Hazard, Torgan Hazard, this is Batshuayi, I mean, it's the same, Mertens, yeah, it's the same group of players that he's used throughout the this six years and I just feel like every other nation if you if you go back to the 2016 Euros when Roy Hodgson was in charge of England and you look at England's transition now so many I mean the majority of the, the side is completely different now you know whereas with Belgium of views and I understand obviously it was um Mark Wilmot's in charge of Belgium in 2016 but I'm talking about when Roberto Martinez first got that group of players and it was yeah I've just been it's been quite um it's been quite strange to see, and I, I wanted to ask you, Brandon, what kind of what kind of other young players then could could he have? Do you think he's kind of hampered a bit in terms of not giving them enough minutes in the force team? Um, well, Zeno DeBast, I feel like could be one. Granted, he just broke through at the end of last season, mm-hmm. and he played in the Nations League, but I feel like he could have played at this World Cup a little bit. Um, moving up into midfield. Jeremy Doku hasn't played much for Wren, but like was great for Anderlecht, good young yeah. talent. And he, he did come on yesterday, but I feel like he could have had more minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Southampton's youngster, Romeo Lavia, has done really well for them, and I don't even think he made the squad. Um, Leandro Trossard played a lot, which I was thrilled about because mm-hmm. he was very good with Genk, has done well with Belgium since he's moved to England. Um, and then outside of that, you, you just look and... That those are the names that come to mind instantly, and there's so many more. Like Gary Versharin at Anderlecht, he didn't make the squad, yeah. and there's all these this young talent in Belgium that hopefully in the next international break, whenever that happens, maybe under a new manager, more of this young talent will begin to filter through, and more people will be able to see how how good 
the Belgian league is with developing these young players and that they deserve a chance as well, especially with the aging of the rest of the squad. They, it's kind of time, I think, for the old guard to be shifted out and bringing in some new players. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like maybe that time was after they were knocked out by Italy in Euro 2020. And uh, it, it almost seemed that the team was aging then. And that was kind of their last ever tournament. And then Martinez decided to kind of milk the cow one more time. And it, it's, I mean, without sounding disturbing, the milk is just completely sour. It's just awful. Mm-hmm. Bryant, let's talk about the game then. It was goalless. Uh, I don't think Belgium were wonderfully or were wonderful defensively, but I mean they 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 probably should have scored on the balance of play. Romelu Lukaku probably I think he he hit the dugout more times than he hit the target, which was which was quite embarrassing, really. I mean he had a just an awful last half an hour of 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 football, and as I say in the introduction, it'll probably haunt him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, Romelu Lukaku performance in front of goal it, it was awful mm-hmm. the one that he hit the post is unbelievable it, it, it really is and and that was was the goal that knocked out Croatia and qualified them for the uh, round of 16 well, there were several so others wasn't it there was the the one at the back. Yeah. I remember he chested it. I don't think he really saw he chested the defender. It to the it was just, his reactions were. It was just everything was off. I just couldn't believe what I was watching. It was quite. Um, I kind of. I did feel a bit a bit sorry for him. To be fair, I mean, he, yeah, he didn't intentionally miss these chances, but it was. You, you, I mean, yeah, the guy has a combined total three hundred million pounds per transfer, or for or two hundred or three hundred million for transfers over the years, and he, he's missing short chances like that. Yeah, I I didn't like that much the the game it was a i think a really flat game until uh, roberto martinez put jeremy doku and mm-hmm. yuri tillemans in the in the match in the on the pitch uh, jeremy doku really was dribbling and running and creating chances i mean i think a lot of the chances that Lukaku uh, missed were created before by by Doku, so he was kind of uh, telling Roberto Martinez, "I'm here and I I wanted to play and this is how we 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 have to play." But it it was really flat the game. Roberto Martinez teams are like that. I I think I don't quite like the tactics of Martinez. He didn't try to change up. Some things he, he went with his three four two one or three four one two in some matches, and I didn't quite like that much. The Bruyne just said disconnect from all all the other players. Um, Thomas Meunier was really he had the target with crosses and all that, but he's not that player to go forward. And Belgium just really lacked that creation, link-up play. In Croatia, in the first minutes of the match, they were so close to a goal. Uh, Yeah, it was 11 seconds when Perisic, was a Perisic, I believe, had the the opportunity where he kind of hit it on the half volley and it just went wide of the post. It's literally 11 seconds. That that was crazy. That was crazy from Perisic, who is unbelievable. He's 34, 35, I think, and it's still at the... Pacey, yeah, and, and... and let's not pretend that Belgium rode the look a little bit too because they could have. I mean, Croatia, yeah, should have maybe could have or should have had a penalty. It was, it was again, and it was almost as close as the Japan call, which we'll speak about in a bit. 
the offside. Tactically, tactically, I think it was a slow game, and again, I I'm going to repeat this word, but it, I think it's the word that describes them best and and it is flat it, it was flat you know mm-hmm. Croatia uh, sometimes creating chances uh, with obviously Luka Modric and Andrei Kramarich who I think is the best connection for them with Kramarich dropping out of his zone and Modric then throwing long balls or throwing two true passes to to his players to his teammates sorry yeah I I think we have to think more in the individual performance in this game rather than uh, collective uh, context and tactics. Josko Vardiol was amazing. Uh, he literally blocked a marvelous chance against mm. Lukaku. Uh, that was awesome. I feel like it, I, 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 I feel like it can't be a World Cup if a Croatian player doesn't have a protective mask on. I think it was Vida in the last um, 2018 World yeah. Cup that he got to the final. It was, it was Vida and Lovren. I think <laughs> that, is, that is mad. That is mad. Incredible. The Warriors. <laughs> and Lovren is still playing. I know. He I don't have seen him I don't have seen him enough in in the league context, but I mm. think he has to be playing very good to play in a World Cup alongside Josko Vardiol. But things are going well to Croatia. I think Borna Sosa is a really good player on the defense as well and going to attack. Obviously, they have a 37 player playing, but it's Luka Modric. So <laughs> you do you It's a good um, it's a good 37 year old to have. To be fair. Yeah, and you have Lovro Meyer then um, being the substitute. So it is good sides for Croatia and really worrying for Belgium because I think their time uh, was over in 2018 in the World Cup when they won Brazil. And mm-hmm. it was still a, a really a regular team, I think, because uh, they weren't hitting that tactically beauty with Martinez, but they have the, those players at their peak. De Bruyne, Hazard, yeah. uh, lots of players that... I did give them a little bit I, of a pass Brandon, in 2018, though, because, I mean, ultimately they lost out to France, who went on to win the tournament. I suppose in 2020 a bit, like yeah. that too, Italy went on to win the tournament. But just staying on the point exactly. of, being, of being flat, Brandon, I want to ask you, then, who, who, who can come in now and, and kind of revitalize this squad and breed through the new youth of, of, of Belgium, essentially? Um, If we're looking, if we're talking Belgian-based first, because I feel like that's where the FA would want to look, look for a Belgian manager doing well in the pro league. Mm-hmm. You look at Wouter Vranschkin at Genk right away, has them top of the table flying right now, only one loss in 17 for them. But I don't know if he would leave considering he, it was funny because he signed a contract to get go there in the summer, and now less than six months later, he signed a new contract after the start that they had. So I don't know if he would be possible. There's Carl Hufkins at Club Bruges. They're doing well. He's done well with them in the Champions League. He worked for Club Bruges Academy, so he's very good with bringing young players through with all the young talent that Club Bruges have. Other than that, those are like the two names that stand out in regards to in the Belgian League. If you're looking managers who don't have a job, Felice I Mazu? doubt it. This, yeah, Felice Mazu. He just went to Charleroi, but who knows? 
about that one because he actually just went back to Charleroi after leave after getting sacked by Anderlecht. Um, other than that, you look at managers who are available that aren't Belgian. You have unlikely but Thomas Tuchel. I doubt he would want to go into international management, but he's there. Uh, Joachim Love is still available after leaving Germany. That could be an option. Um, an interesting one is everyone like Louis Van Hall actually came out. He didn't deny that he would be interested in the job. He just said something about to the press. He would have you would have to convince my wife. But <laughs> there's something yeah, taken every single job. Yeah, because he never he has never said anything about retiring after this World Cup with the Netherlands. So he could be an option to take over Belgium. And other than that, the one name that I think could be the most interesting name is Hervé Renard. That could be the one that I feel like could, that could be a good one. I like it. don't know if that would happen, but that would be my name to possibly watch as an interesting uh, candidate to take over Belgium. Oh, I like it. That's interesting. And it would be probably his, well, it would be his first, um, of course, big international job. I, I don't mean to sound disrespectful to some other nations. I mean, Saudi Arabia, of course, are a huge country, but on the, on, in football terms, in terms of success. Mm-hmm. And of course, he is one of the most successful international managers out there at the minute. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't see why not. I would, I would, I would love to see Louis van Gaal uh, as, the, as the Belgian manager. Yeah. I mean, that would be absolutely fascinating to watch. Or, I saw somebody uh, on social media mention Arsene Wenger, which is, I just feel like he, mm-hmm. he's, he's linked to every kind of big job. I, I don't think Wenger will ever go back to the management. <laughs> I would like to yeah. see him, personally. I'd love to see Wenger back to management. Yeah. Um, and I'm basing that solely on, uh, of course, being able to speak French. And I know in Belgium, you've like four, five languages. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have to speak some sort of, of one of the languages, I suppose. We'll move on, though, to Morocco and Canada. Morocco topped the group, uh, which is just incredible. And I spoke about this, uh, I believe, yesterday, that African nations are doing so, so well at this World Cup, which is great to see. I mean, Senegal, Senegal are already true. Morocco are already true. And of course, you have you have Tunisia who put up a very good fight. They just missed out. They got four points, but obviously the the, the defeat to Australia killed them in the end. You've Cameroon who will be fighting today, uh, and they're probably likely to to bow out. But then Ghana are in pole position, which is wonderful. So I'm delighted for Morocco. Um, just because of time, we'll actually move on to the final group, and we'll we'll talk about Japan and Spain because it's. We'll tactically deep dive into this match because it is, I'd argue, I mean, Japan broke the world last week when they beat Germany. It was such a shock result. And then they managed to better that a week later. Brian, I'll come to you. Talk to me through Moriasu's tactics then to, to, to essentially put Spain to the sword. I really like what they look to do in this match. and. In the previous match against Costa Rica, mostly the defensive phase was really good because they were so coordinated to change their shapes to a 4-4-2, 4-5-1, or even a 5-3-2, where the winger entered as a left uh, wing back and Nagatomo was playing as a left center back. So that was really cool to see that they were so so coordinated to do these uh, exchanges of shapes. But in the attacking phase. Obviously, Costa Rica looked to be more deep and give them the possession. And they were a bit, they were struggling to break a block. So against Spain, 
they look to be more comfortable. And I think we talk about this in the podcast that they feel more comfortable without the ball. It suits them, doesn't it? I mean, Spain were probably the idea, although they're a really great side, it was probably an ideal uh, opponent for them to face because they play how Japan would want the team to play against them. Absolutely. And it's kind of fun because if you think that Moriyasu's have said, I think before the match or after the match, that he creates two plans, one for the first half, another for the second half. That is crazy because I had never seen that in football. So <laughs> it's strange. But well, it's worked twice. In the first, but, but you can see it clearly mm. against Germany and against Spain. And it worked for him and for his team. Uh, in the first half, they looked to defend on a 5-4-1. They closed down all the spaces against uh, Spain, who were playing the ball side to side, trying to stretch uh, or attract that defensive block from Japan. And they couldn't quite do it. They found the goal with a, a header, a good cross from Aspilicueta. And then they were, they have the ball, but it, it, it they didn't do anything with the ball, but it was because all credit to Japan that were really good defensively. And I really like that shape, but they quite didn't hit the target to rub the ball, win the ball back and do the attacking transitions. So in the second half, he'll Morigasu literally released the beast with with Mitoma. <laughs> that is yeah. absolutely crazy to have a player like him uh, on the bench and also Rich Sudoan, who is a, uh, an interesting player, really pacey, dribbling technique and all that. And then he subbed in Asano and Tomiyasu, who are another great players. Asano literally uh, destroyed Germany. And Tomiyasu is tactically... Uh, marvelous players to, uh, to understand what the coach is looking for so in the second half they literally jump aggressively looking to grab the ball and be that quick and be and look for these um, counter-attacking situations and they did it perfectly they the counter-attacks were, were really really smooth and it was quite enjoyable to watch and I also loved the especially when they were in the 5-4-1 um how, how and how little space there was even, in the lines. Yeah. The centre backs would even when they would press Spain high, if they were if they'd go man to man. But then if there was a free man exactly. in the field, yeah, say yeah. for Spain, one of the central defenders would say the right centre back would step out and he would join essentially the press. It was brilliant. It was a great, great game plan overall. Yeah, that, that, was brilliant. In the that press. kind of that kind of exchanges in their shapes. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely mad to do and to coach. Yeah. It, 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 it's crazy to do and even when the game when Spain was down and it was the 70th minute and Costa Rica was winning and that is was crazy Spain and Germany were knockout in th- like for five minutes the craziest three minutes even, of football yeah and even in those minutes that were passing and, and the game was concluding Japan feels so comfortable without mm-hmm. the ball and they were even more threatening that Spain that have the ball so close to the to Japan's box yeah. and Japan in ev- every transition were so so threatening. I don't know how they didn't score the third goal after that. Yeah, it it, it didn't. I mean, 
Spain never looked like they were going to score. And I spoke uh, to you guys before uh, we started recording about Fintan O'Reilly's piece. And it's just gone out on the TFA website for our listeners to read. It's an excellent article, uh, you know, an, an analysis of the game. And he has a pass map of Spain throughout the whole match. And it's just every pass is in a U shape. They just, I mean, there was rarely a successful pass played into that box that wasn't cleared away. It was a phenomenal performance. As I said, the space between the lines was excellent because you know Spain want to play into those players to, to Pedri or to Gavi or whoever's there or Morata when he drops. I just want to read out a stat that Dave, my, you know, David has still sent to me before this. This century, the two lowest possession totals by a winning team in a World Cup match were Japan's two wins at the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. 18% versus Spain and 26 versus Germany. <laughs> so Japan have beaten Spain 2-1 with 18% of the ball, which is incredible. I mean, what a, what a statistic that is. And I'll actually come to you now, Brandon, on, on, on Germany really quickly. Germany are out, second consecutive tournament. They've been knocked out at the group phase. Two different managers, though. Are they suffering from a bit of... The Belgian syndrome, I want to call it, in terms of a, a bit of an aging squad, albeit with some wonderful youth sprinkled throughout the side, like Jamal Musiala, he's, he's an incredible player. I don't know if they're suffering from the same problem Belgium has necessarily, but you do look at the Germany squad, and there are some older players in there. Thomas Muller is one of them. Um, Ilkay Gundogan's getting to his mid thirties now. Rudiger. Manuel, yeah, Rudiger, Manuel Neuer is mid thirties. Mm-hmm. So you look at the squad and yes, it's a bit um, of an aging squad, but Musiala, very good. He is, he was one of my favorite players to watch in this tournament. I mean, against Spain, he was dribbling past three, four five defenders. Like they didn't even exist. He, it's a shame that England couldn't get him internationally and he went yeah. to Germany, but I mean, he has been spectacular and with Bayern too, this season, he has been spectacular. Um, but I, it's just Germany. I don't know. The, it's just a weird position that they're in because you would have put them going into this tournament to get out of this group, possibly win the group. Mm. When you look at Spain, Costa Rica, Japan, you would expect Germany to get through that group. They they looked good in the first game against Japan, at least in the first half. Then Moriyasu made the tactical switches, and Hansi Flick just couldn't find an answer to what Japan were doing. Um, and then if you look at the Spain game, they did well to fight back to get that point, which yeah. they needed. So then you would think going into Costa Rica, it'll be an easy win, which they did get the win in the end, though they did make it hard for themselves. You would just all they the problem was going into that game, you knew you needed other results to go your way mm-hmm. if you were going to go through. So if everything was different and they ended up beating Japan, going into this Costa Rica game, whatever happens, you're for the most part through. So I I just feel like they're in a good position going forward with Hansi Flick. I think it's just a small blip. Mm-hmm. I think going forward, going into the next Euros and stuff like that, Germany will be will get back to where they have been in the past. It's just, I feel like it's just a small little blip. Hansi Flick, he's done it before, won a treble with Bayern. He was Yogi Love's assistant at the World Cup. So he's been through, especially with the World Cup with Germany in 2018, he's been through the failure before. Mm-hmm. of not getting out of the group. So I think I think they'll be fine. And I think they will just grow from this experience and they will do well in the next tournament. I mean, yeah, it's just... just I probably would have tipped them to definitely progress from the group. That's, I think most people would have. But 
They had one win in seven uh, before the tournament, and now that's increased to one in ten in competitive matches, I should say. So now they've one win in ten competitive matches, which is, yeah, it is a bit, of, it is a blip, but also it's kind of a bit concerning considering the talent they have. Um, you know, I, I, I would say one of the issues they have, and I spoke to Lee about this a few days ago, is the lack of the lack of a recognised centre forward. And I understand mm-hmm. Nicholas Fulkrug is doing really well, but that's you know he's not a world beater by any stretch of the imagination. I think in the last two decades, Germany's best centre forwards have been Miroslav Klose and Mario Gomez, maybe, and mm-hmm. even at that, they weren't world class players. You know, let's let's be real, they weren't. They were good goal scorers, especially Klose, who's Germany's mm-hmm. all time top goal scorer, but they weren't um, world beaters. So it's you know playing Havertz up front, like okay, and even Muller, they're not. They're not number nine. Yeah. I wouldn't call them number nines. But anyway, yeah. 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 So I, I think that I think the Werner injury hurt them going mm-hmm. into this tournament because you would think going into this tournament, if Werner's fit, he starts up top and there's your number nine. Yeah. Or, and, and I'm also like, I understand why he maybe didn't start full Krug considering he never had an international appearance. Mm-hmm. But full Krug came on against Spain, scored the equalizer, and played really well. He could have had two. I think it was the one chance where Musiala should have squared it to him yeah. and it was a tap-in and Musiala went for goal instead. Full crew played really well, so but I do sort of understand maybe why he wasn't starting him in those games. But you would think if Werner was fit, Werner would start up top. Yeah, I agree. Of course it did. So it that did. hurt them. Yeah, it definitely did hurt them before the tournament. That is correct. We'll move on though to Saturday's games. The knockout rounds are starting. The first game is the Netherlands and the USA. That's at 3 p.m. UK time on Saturday. This is a really interesting fixture because I don't remember in my lifetime seeing the Netherlands in USA before. I could be completely mistaken. Uh, certainly not at a World Cup recently anyway. Um, Louis van Hal versus Greg Berhalter. Brandon, I'll come to you. You're currently living in the US. <laughs> Talk to me then about their chances of getting by the Netherlands, which I would say are pretty decent. I mean, I don't think the Netherlands have been world beaters at this tournament so far. Yeah, I would agree. I'm, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic going into this game. Like you said, the Dutch have not been that good this tournament. Mm-hmm. Yes, they topped their group. They got through pretty easily, you would say, but they they weren't the group. They they haven't looked that good. Cody Gakpo has looked spectacular for them, which everyone expected going into this tournament with his form for PSV. But the the defense has been kind of a question mark because you have Ake and you have Van Dyke, and it's that third center back that's been. Tough to figure out. Delict started against Senegal, and he wasn't the greatest. Then Devry came in, and he did a bit better. But I'm cautiously optimistic going into this game because mm. in the Iran game, there were some definite good things to come out of it. Of course, Pulisic's injury is the big question mark, but he has said multiple times he's going to play. So whether he can go a full 90 minutes, I don't know. But if he can go at least 60, 70 minutes, then that's something. Uh, I think Weston McKenney had a bit of a knock and came off, so you would want him fully fit. Josh Sargent, he's day-to-day, with I heard, with his ankle injury. Mm. So fitness could be the problem. But And I, I guess also the lineup that Berhalter goes with, he'll likely stick with a 4-3-3. The question will be, Robinson and Des will likely still be the wingbacks and Turner and goal. It's who's going to partner... Um, Who's going to go into central defense? Because you have Cameron Carter-Vickers, who was in there. He replaced Walker Zimmerman. So the question will be, does he stick with Carter-Vickers, who I thought played really well 
considering it was kind of a <clears throat> kind of a surprise inclusion into the team. Mm-hmm. So um, I think he might go back because Tim Ream's done really well as well. Yeah, so it's yeah. a matter of is it Carter Vickers or Zimmerman? Um, I would argue Carter Vickers should get another chance. He could go back to Zimmerman because it's the knockouts. Now you want someone a bit more experienced internationally. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see because it's going to be a totally different game to how the Iran game was. The U.S. had the majority of possession against Iran. They were able to just, I think they entered the final third. Final third entries for them were like in the, at the halftime, like almost 50. Mm-hmm. Like they just, they were in the final third a lot. They did get the goal. They did well rotating players in and out and attack to create space to try to get through Iran's low block. And the Dutch won't play like that. So it'll be interesting to see what Berhalter has in mind um, against the Dutch. And the, once again, my concern with him is the in-game tactical adjustments. So he he will likely have a good game plan going in. He normally, the start of games, his game plan is really good. The problem is if the Dutch alter something at halftime, I'm concerned as where how Berhalter, if and if he'll respond and how he'll respond, mm-hmm. or he'll just stay the path. So it's going to be an interesting game, but I'm cautiously optimistic for um, our chances against the Dutch. I am. I, I have been quite <laughs> impressed, I suppose, from a tactical point of view of how flexible the US have been. I mean, you take the the Welsh game; they were pressing really high. They pressed a lot better than they actually imagined they could do. Wales managed to bring Kiefer Moore on the second half, and then it kind of slipped away from them unfortunately but against England then England had the majority of the ball and they were able to sit in that 4-4 obviously it's a 4-3-3 and then it switches to a 4-4-2 out of possession they're really compact they denied England space between the lines England couldn't break them down they couldn't get through then against Iran they were the possession dominant team they were able to have the ball and get the you know those final third entries as you spoke about so I think the the ability of the US to be flexible from you know in contrast to the opposition so I would imagine the Netherlands won't switch up how they play. We all know how they're going to play. They're going to ball us yeah. to death. The US will have to be, you know, quite solid defensively. And I think they will be because I, going forward, the Netherlands haven't been impressive. And Cody no. Gakpo is scoring at a great rate, but his XG per shot is kind of mm-hmm. showing how good of he, he is as a finisher, but not that they're creating good chances. So I think if you can deny yeah. him chances, you have a pretty good chance of going through it imagine even if it's you go all the way to extra penalties well, that's fine yeah you'll take it we'll move on and i think the fullbacks quickly just one more point and yeah, i think the fullbacks will be key for the u.s mm-hmm. because with the dutch playing their back three there will likely be space out wide and behind and dest was real dest was arguably the best player against iran sending cross into the box going yeah. up and down that wing him and robinson will be key i think for the u.s in this game i agree i think they're especially dest Against Iran, I thought he was absolutely fantastic. I really did. Mm-hmm. He was a, he's a wonderful player. He's, I suppose he struggled a little bit in the last 12 months at club level. Um, he went to AC Milan and hasn't really hit the ground running there, but I still think he's a fantastic player. Brian, we'll move to Argentina and Australia. We know what Argentina can do. We know who they have. How can Australia give themselves any chance of progressing out of the tournament? Or out of, the, of this match, apologies. It... It was going to. It is going to be a good match. I think it. It, it is two different teams. Um, Argentina, with this a lot of talk before Brazil's match and how Tite has converted Brazil into a European side. Maybe Argentina looks the most South American team in that way, looking to play 
in relation to where the ball moves and against uh, Poland. That was the Argentina side that South Americans looked throughout this past three years. You know, players moving around, trying to be really quick with the ball, having the ball, rotation, rota rotations between the lines, positions, Messi um, going deep, going forward. And I think the addition of Julian Alvarez was amazing. And obviously Enzo Fernandez is dominating the midfield. He's incredible. But I think Australia have a really good plan and a really good idea of how to defend this uh, because against Denmark, Denmark weren't that good and weren't that uh, rotational side. But the midfield was trying to, trying to kind of do this uh, between Jensen, Eriksen and Hoiberg in the, pre in the last match that Australia won 1-0 and they qualified for the round of 16. Australia defend on a 4-4-2 with a very rigid midfield line so close to the defensive one so they don't quite allow the players to receive uh, between the lines and it's quite good the aggressivity some of the midfielders or the wide players like Lecky or Goodwin at some moments defensively uh, try to rob the ball and they have a pressing trigger uh, outside so if the ball is played to the left back or the full back, they're going to press aggressive with two players, their full back who, who jumps off his line and one of the white players there. And that could be a problem for Argentina if they are moving the ball side to side. And Australia have shown a really good way to attack, simple but really good in their transitions. They're looking for outswing passes or doing transitions with four or five players, that is Matt two wide players, two strikers, and one commanding the ball. It's absolutely good. And Argentina have looked very good, I think, with the rest defense in the last match. They look good. And I think it's the try of Enzo Fernandez that has um, correct some things in, in the Argentina starting 11 in this wrist defense uh, method. And obviously, Otamendi level is very good and he is literally kicking everything. Otamendi is also close to signing a new contract with Benfica. Uh, so he's playing really well on Benfica, top of the league, and he's partnering yeah. alongside Antonio Silva, who is with the Portuguese national team at the minute. I don't think he's got any game time yet, but he is. I tipped him in a recent scout report for TFA to be one of the best defenders in the world in a few years. I think he's absolutely stellar. He's a, a wonderful player. And I yeah, guess I want to quickly just touch on your point, uh, Brian DeBow. Hmm. Australia or Argentina as well as can break down Australia just make sure they don't leave any excess notes uh, on the pitch for Australia to pick up so they can change the games because I'm not sure if you saw from the de the game against Denmark um, Denmark a Denmark note attacked with tactical changes on it got into the hands of the Australian coach and stuff and they changed formation to a 5-4-1 uh, going off the the basis of that note and then ended up <laughs> holding out for uh, 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 three points, which is huge. So but I just want to say about that, actually, sorry, I know, I know I'm going into a bit of a tangent. Was it not written in Danish? I mean, you know, I was baffled. Can the Australian coaches read Danish or would it, would, was it written in English? I don't understand how it works. But anyway, uh, full credit to Australia. And I agree with your point. I think they are extremely tough to break down with the exception of obviously 
the four five one mid block they went with against France, which I thought was quite permeable. Yeah, against France, if you want to compare a game with this Argentina the team, it has to be France because of the quality of their players and how they move through the lines. France are more a positional side. Uh, Mbappe and Tio Hernandez were trying to do these positional changes uh, with Rabiot as well. And they, they're going to face a quality equal team, I mean, I think, with Argentina, uh, if we compare it with France. And, but not that tactically the same. Argentina want, want to move more with the ball and have more rotations on the pitch. So that could be a risk for Australia because if one of these uh, rotations end in a goal, they have to look after the equalizer. And with the ball, they're not quite good. They are so good when they only have the ball two seconds in their feet and they throw long balls and that is, that's it. Mitchell Duke has, has been really good as a target man. Yeah. And we have to see if Cuchi Romero or Lisandro Martinez are going to be the starters. And I will go with Cuchi Romero because we have seen Lisandro against players like Duke, like Welbeck on the Premier League that he didn't quite... Uh, defended that well against him so it's going to be a tough selection for Scaloni uh, this match to contain Mitchell Duke as a target man but I, I think it's going to be a win for Argentina but it's not going to be easy in the first minutes Australia is going to look very compact and rigid so Messi between the lines and Di Maria out wide they have to do quite of a job because Australia looked to avoid very good 2v1 situations mm. on the outside and they overload the central areas. Very good. Jackson Irving and Arumui are so good defending and yeah. I quite like that idea from them. So this rotation from Argentina is going to be interesting to see how Australia are going to defend this by not disordering their block. I, I I agreed with your point until you criticised my boy Lissandro Martinez. How dare you? Lissandro <laughs> Martinez is one of my favourite defenders at the minute. He's an incredible player. No, no. I don't think he's a bad. I think he's a marvellous no. player. I think maybe top five centre-backs. But even against <laughs> Poland, the decision to put Kutu Romero was because of this, because of the yeah. height and having Lewandowski as a target man. And it's the context, you know, it's the World Cup, it's not the Premier League. Well, they, really I think I think if, if, if Scaloni put me at the back against Poland, they weren't doing any damage. I just don't think Poland were even yeah. trying to go forward. But it's something like be more to, to save your team if something happens and Lewandowski was looking to Lisandro Martinez and all that, I think Lisandro on the air is very good besides. He, uh, I think he's listed at 178. Maybe that, that that's his height. That nine. is unbelievable. Yeah, he's very good on the air. But it's the context. It's the World Cup. And when you see Cucci Romero in his aggressivity and tackling players and all that, it's the kind of 
thing you want. But then the progression that Martinez gives again a deep block. It's absolutely amazing. He looks like literally Messi on defense <laughs> passing the ball. I agree. So, I think every match for Argentina, Escaloni ha had this tough selection because mm -hmm. it's Cuti Romero is amazing as well, but you have Lisandro Martinez and, and, and that is a tough one. Then you have Lautaro and Julian and then you have Enzo and Paredes. He's having a nightmare to, to select his team and I think he he was going to have this in at every match of the round of 16 so we have to see if Lisandro's plays against Mitchell Duke I, I will go with Kutu Romero but I don't think Lisandro is going to do a bad game against Mitchell Duke I agree I, I if he plays I, I, I would consider Argentina the heavy favorites to progress into the quarterfinals and uh, but I would love to see Australia get through. I mean, what would be one of the biggest shocks in World Cup history, you know, it was well recent history at least. Ryan, Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this chat. And to all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too. And make sure to tune in tomorrow as we review and preview all the action from the 2022 FIFA World Cup. So make sure to check back in for that and please share the podcast too as it really helps us grow. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now. 